Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, Ian, Ian, me, me. Qualified, qualified, qualified success, qualified success. Me, Ian. It is Wednesday, which means it's time for the front three with me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Hey, how you doing? And of course, Dave O'Brien. Hello, welcome back. So, guys, my prediction that Newcastle would stay up, my mathematical calculations have come true. Oh, no, wait, I forgot to... Carry the one. I forgot to carry the one. Therefore, <laughs> I was wrong. My, my um, were just, they were a little bit off. Just a tiny, just one. Let know, down. Basically, decimal. let down by a shoddy, shoddy Everton team. <laughs> exactly. Bloody Everton. Newcastle are down, guys. Norwich are down as well. Southern have ensured their survival tonight by winning against Everton. Dave O'Brien, what do you make of it all? Everton were never going to offer much resistance, to be fair. Not to sound like a bit of a bell end, but I, you know, remember when Allardyce was appointed? I kind of called that Sunderland was going to stay up. Dave, that's you know, the same as saying that like Spain season. would win the Euros. It's like, oh yeah, whoa. well done. You predicted. Whoa, 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 lads, go back to the podcast we recorded, and I think you two had Newcastle staying up, and I had, I had Sunderland staying up. Don't know what you're talking about, mate. Don't know what you're talking about. No, I mean, it, is, anyway. it is literally by uh, like you might as well have thrown a dart at the wall. Like it is. Oh, whoa. It is. It, it, like I, I think the difference is that Newcastle is, and this is the difference between the two clubs. Obviously, uh, Sunderland employed the right guy, but Newcastle were never going to have Big Sam back after what he did at that club. And then they employed Benitez way too late. Um, but had he had a few more games, I think Benitez would have outlasted Big Sam. It's true. <laughs> In, in terms of the game, it was a wonderful performance. Tell you what, Eunice Kabul looked like looked like Maldini at times, and Lee Catamol at central midfield. He was doing Pirlo passes at the end. It was unbelievable to see the transformation of this side. That, quite frankly, halfway through the season, after you know Dick Abacat's spell, were awful. You know, it's credit to Sam Allardyce. What a turnaround! I think he's got them, got the players working. He's got a right system. Kazari looks really good. Jermaine Defoe. Wow, he looks like the form striker in the Premier League right now. You probably England should probably take him to the Euros. Oh come on. There's a, there was a moment where he, he got, um, there was a ball that was played behind him by Van Arnholt, um, and he managed to step over the ball and flick it inside and then get a shot away. It was a bit of individual brilliance. But you know, I'd say Jermaine Defoe looks hungry. He looks like he fancies it. And why not take him to the Euros? Do you think Because he's managed by Big Sam, and that's probably the main influence there. Whereas if you go to the Euros, it's going to be a completely different environment, completely different level, completely different type of player. Like, it's an interesting, it is an interesting point though in terms of, you know, you're contrasting there Sunderland, Newcastle, Lawrence, and you say, you know, Sunderland brought in Big Sam back in October. Obviously, Newcastle wait a little bit longer before they did that. But also, in terms of Jermaine Defoe, the recruitment as well. That's very smart recruitment to bring him in 
uh, his goals, how many goals did he score now? I mean, for a relegation team, for him to score that many goals is very impressive. 13 goals, I think. That, that's yeah, I mean, uh, very you know, there's, there's, So it's not, it's not necessarily putting Jermaine Defoe down, but it's just sort of, it's the factors which are made Jermaine Defoe good. And for, for me, those come from being A, managed by Big Sam because he knows how to get the best out of maybe a player like Jermaine. He kind of pinpointed them, if you like, and said, said he wanted a player like that. Uh, if not, na- name-checking him, I think. Mm. And then uh, also, I think either club, had they gone down or had they stayed up, would have done similar things within the hierarchy. I mean, Newcastle are at a slightly different stage. Like, it's become a little bit f- more fraught and a little bit more pulled over there. But, you know, Newcastle have gone down. That gives them a chance to reset. Um, and if Sunderland go down, probably would have given them a chance to reset. But it's also the club that stays up. They also have a massive rebuilding job to do. And that's the issue is, you know, either manager, be that Benitez or Allardyce, has now got a building job to do. And both managers have scepticism over their building, um, their long, their, their building assets, if you like, and how good they are at putting those assets together for different reasons. Though. It's, the, the, the point I'd make is that both clubs are badly run. But Sunderland is slightly better. <laughs> both have such potential. Because, both yeah. have so much to give. But this is to the, the fifth. Allardyce is the fifth Sunderland manager in four years. You know, this season they've spent just thirty-eight days outside of the relegation zone. I mean, obviously they've been on a pretty impressive run now. One defeat in their last ten games, essentially. There's a sense, Dave, that these are both very poorly run clubs. But maybe Sunderland is slightly less poorly run. Yeah, you'd say so. I think the appointment of um, you know Rafa Benitez was a little bit too late to save their season. I imagine if he was uh, brought in the same time Allardyce was, you know, it'd be a different story come the end of the season. But you know, credit to Sunderland picking a manager that is very, very good at not avoiding relegation. Never been relegated in his career. Really good at that level. You know, credit to him for sort of laying the foundations at West Ham. Everyone is credited. You know, Billich gets a lot of credit for how they're playing in an attacking centre, but it was the big Sam Allardyce. Uh, sort of defensive organisation that's still in, you know, still at West Ham this season. Again, it's going to be interesting next season to see whether West Ham still have that. But what he's changed for this Sunderland time is that Sunderland side, sorry, is absolutely crucial. Playing this four-five-one, Lee Catamol patrolling in front of the back four, two very energetic central midfielders, um, two wide players that do a lot of work, and then Jermaine Defoe up front. It's a it's a side that can be very competitive in the Premier League. You know, next season if that Sam still says, you could see them easily being you know around that tenth mark, maybe eighth in the Premier League. So credit to Big Sam again. He, he's done wonders, and as I tweeted before, Sam Allardyce, football genius. <laughs> you do feel though, Lawrence, that these teams don't learn their lesson. Though I mean, we're talking about Sunderland, who have been in a relegation battle for a number of years now, and of course Newcastle relegated just a few years ago. They've bounced back, but again they're going down. These teams don't seem to learn from their mistakes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you do get parachute payments within that. Um, you, um, obviously, the aim is never parachute payments, especially not the end of the, uh, this season because of the amount of pay- money that people are going to get from the Premier League. But uh, I think clubs, fans, a lot of those people learn their lessons. I, I actually think at board level, it's sort of hard to get a collective like that to learn their lesson because, you know, I'm reading the book of Bill Shankly, Red or Dead at the moment, and you know, the, the point in that is that he ha- really struggles to get the board to do things because they are more or less happy with mediocrity or where they're finishing or just keeping the club chugging along, if you like. And so it's not all about, for those guys, results on the pitch. It's also about sort of balance sheets off it. Mm. I think very often, you know, if they're, if they're not learning their lessons in that sense, 
then you know they're, they're not going to learn their lesson uh, on the pitch either because you know if you don't feel like you have to put investment in to be able to get some sort of return maybe they won't do it but i i mean, I mean that's the issue is now you know maybe it does put newcastle behind other teams because marketing wise it's very difficult to market those guys there's I mean, a great line on five live tonight they're saying next season that means that burton albion a club who seem to be recently well, well run over the last few years are going to be playing newcastle next season <laughs> i mean on that do you think benitez will stay because obviously he's got this notorious break clause in his contract and you have to feel like even though they have been relegated there hasn't been a massive amount of damage done to his reputation no, I mean, there's been, I mean, in the sense that it would have been fantastic for him if he could have gone there and shown that his man management skills were maybe equal to those guys around him. I mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean make you question him, but at the same time, you know, it would have been fantastic if he could have better motivated some of those guys and maybe, you know, got the win at Villa or pushed Sunderland even just a week longer or one round of games longer. Um, so, you know, there's things like that. Um, which I think he will probably be affected by. And also, I just think it's very difficult. It, like, there's not very much for him to gain, if you like, from going down to the championship. Mm. You know, what does he get from playing down there and essentially having to learn a different kind of football because it's not sort of Champions League-esque yeah. stuff. Uh, much, he definitely struggles with fixture pile-up. And also, uh, you know, could he go and go and manage somewhere else? You know, I mean, Paco has just gone in at uh, Valencia, his old number two, you know, maybe he wants a number one. And how much credit are you going to give to uh, Big Sam, Lawrence? I know you're not the biggest fan. I'm not the biggest fan of Sam, the character. Great escape has been achieved. But, you know, I mean, every season, you have to give him credit for what he's achieved. It is a massive achievement to keep that uh, any club like that up, especially considering, uh, you know, the competition in the Premier League. But it's also that I think Big Sam was very fortunate as well that he came up against... To, so, I mean, you know, it's really the tallest of the midgets is the phrase, uh, you know, I'm not offending one, but you know what I mean by that. Um, you know, Norwich were not a particularly fantastic side come the crunch. Newcastle had already let themselves down a long time ago. Villa didn't really put up much of a problem at all. So in this instance, you know, because Sam was never going to catch uh, Bournemouth at 42 points, it's not. The, not the massive achievement that maybe some people are painting it as and he got away mm. by the skin of his teeth um, mm. but what month oh, what, 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 what month did he come in? October there you go see you later Lawrence McKenna I don't, I don't like the clique Big I don't, Sam I don't like the clique which used to hang around uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and kiss his ass all of them oh yeah the boys them, all the lads them, yeah Brucey Allardyce Poulis. all those guys, all, those guys <laughs> all the think, boys all those guys who think they run the league um and they're sort of, it's just a weird element to them. You know, like, yeah, there's, there's something a bit BNP about it all, or like National Frontier. Lawrence, you cannot say that Sam Allardyce and Tony Pulis and Alex Ferguson are part of the National Front. No, I, don't, I, definitely, don't, I definitely don't mean Sir Alex Ferguson, but when you sort of look at them from a distance, you do sort of think, you guys look like wankers. You're just jealous <laughs> because Sam Allardyce was never Liverpool manager. I mean, there's definitely an element of that. Yes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. let me just let me just say this year, next season, Sam Allardyce versus Pep Guardiola. Now that is going to be absolutely brilliant. Actually, I mean that, but that is actually a really big tactical battle for Pep. Like you know, yeah, it's, sort of, it's going to be huge. I do, but you know, I mean, it is also it's what's down to Sam Allardyce. I mean, you know, to get Fabio Brini to score a goal in the first place is a massive achievement. Um, 
that's but that obviously that sarcasm. But you know, look at <laughs> what he's done with that side. There are some players in that side which are classic Sam Allardyce players. Mm. It does. You know, you have to give credit to someone for escaping. I think you do. You do have to give credit to that. But it feels like Newcastle's demise has. It's been coming. I mean, there's only so much instability that a club can take. They've had, I think it's 11 managers in the last 10 years. Yeah. You're looking at the likes of, <laughs> you're the likes of Allardyce himself, um, Kevin Keegan, Joe Kinnear famously, Alan Shearer, Alan Pardew, of course, and then John Carver and Steve McLaren. They're not exactly names that inspire you with confidence. And even more recently, you look at the recruitment. That they've done, and we're talking about how you know some of them got Kirchhoff, and they've got you know Defoe signings that have turned out to be quite astute. It's not quite been the same story for Newcastle. So at the same time, you wouldn't you wouldn't put much stock in them coming straight back up because, as we said, the club is poorly run from top to bottom. Well, who's going to leave also in the summer? You know, there's some good players in there that are probably on their mm. way out. Um, although also some sort of players who've been there far too long. You know, it's difficult to move a player like Cissé on. Mm. I'd imagine for a profit or something which is going to feel like a positive. But he's not been great this season, has he? Um, and then you obviously you look at Ben Arthur. Um, you know, like you say, it's, it's, this has been telegraphed a long mm-hmm. time before. But it's two huge institutions. And I think, you know, what's really disappointing is we don't have sort of Chris Nair Festival tonight to describe what it means for sort of that area, but also how it, you know, how these are two massive clubs. Like, yeah, you know, it's nothing to do with where the fans think they should be, just in terms of the size of the club, what they do and how they've done it down the years. This team were sort of challenging for the Premier League, what, mm-hmm. 20 years ago now? <laughs> yeah, they finished fifth a, lot, a few seasons ago, so it's, it's frustrating, I'd say. This was a club that once had Alan Pardew as their manager. They once and in many mm-hmm. ways, he set them on a almost um, unavoidable course for relegation. <laughs> Newcastle United are down then, along with Norwich City, who won 4-2 tonight against Watford. Didn't make any difference at all. Villa, of course, already down. That means we've got our bottom three who are going down to the Championship confirmed. The only uncertainty, really now, in the Premier League table is the position of the top two to five, Dave. Now, of course, mm-hmm. Manchester United... <laughs> Before the game last night at West Ham, the final game at the Bling Ground, it was all about Manchester United can win two games to secure their Champions League qualification. It was all in their hands, Dave. What atmosphere. What a ground. What a set of fans. But firstly, on the pitch, another poor performance from the Red Devils. Very, very stinky. <clears throat> it was on a full-time Devils preview today. And Adam, I thought Adam McCullough was going to cry, the poor lad. Oh, but Gaz Drinkwater was going to break down into tears as well. It was a, it was a terrible display from the lads. But it's just one of those things where it's classic Man United. You know, when they've got the chance to take destiny into their own hands, they throw it away. They throw it down the bin. You know, it's not over yet. But that's it's not looking classic very, Manchester United. That's classic. classic it is of the last. It's three. classic Man United <laughs> of the last three years. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. That's what it is. It's um, it's a shame, you know. There's players there that are talented and have got a lot of ability. You know, players like Anthony Martial, who again was absolutely outstanding. You know, it looks like he's probably got a, a future at left midfield, in my opinion. You know, he play that type of Cristiano goal scoring winger role. He could he could play that for years and years and years. The way he sort of ghosts into that back post, you know, you've seen so many what three or four goals this season where he's just ghosted in and tapped the ball home after it's been over it. Or you know, when the the cross has found his target, but he's just got that. That X factor, you know, the, the second goal that he scored was unbelievable. Sort of, 
what I liked about it was his positioning. He didn't sort of track back. He he stood in the half space in between sort of like the a little the sort of square if we make a square of the left back the left centre back um, and then the left central midfielder and the left midfielder he was sort of in that zone you know West Ham would t- up too much and he kind of was the right hand side let's pretend that squares on the other hand side but then you know it's exposed Winston Reid absolutely did and whether it was a cross whether it was shot I don't really matter he got himself into that position it would have been an assist or a goal anyway Marcus Rashford was steaming the back post but for the rest of the team where was the fight where was the spirit and the Herrera had another terrible display one match is so inconsistent one assist for the goal the first goal but then where was he for the rest of the game you know United created three chances against West Ham that is pitiful mm-hmm. absolutely pitiful like, there's no style this is the problem with Louis van Gaal there's no there's no I think what the issue with Louis van Gaal is he's got a good philosophy of playing out from the back but then when he gets to the final third the players look really short of ideas they don't cross it from decent areas they cross from deep you've got players like Marcus Rojo thinking he's Andre Pirlo playing through balls. It's just an absolute mess. And there's nothing central either. If they don't get the ball central in those areas, they always go wide. There's nothing penetrative there. And it's just a massive shame that this like this team that's got talent potential and could have won the league this season if yeah. they were managed by the right person is just in an absolute shit place. Top four hopes looking slim then, relying on City to basically lose at Swansea on Sunday West Ham though Dave what did you make of them impressive to come back from 2-1 down of course it was the the last game at the Berlin ground an emotional occasion they still managed to put in a performance worthy of the occasion no, I don't know. I think they were they were good. They they pressed well at the right time. They played to their strengths. Mm. They crossed the ball to their their big target man. They played long balls to him. Uh, but what, it was it was more United's undoing in a way. You know, the FA Cup game. Marlon Fellaini had an absolute brilliant game, sort of man marking Andy Carroll on set pieces. Really caused him problems. Andy Carroll couldn't get him, get himself into the game at all. But we didn't have that physical factor. And because we're playing Daily Blind at centre half, no, not you know nothing against Daily Blind, but he's not physical. Mm. You know, you think of a Ferguson team or even a Tony Pulis team. They go to West Ham and when they play four centre backs. United used to do it all the time. West Brown, John O'Shea on the other, you know on the two flanks, and then. Vidic and Ferdinand and it just seems that we've forgotten that we could have done that yesterday we had Phil Jones on the bench we had uh, Fusu Mensa on the bench those two could have started then you've got four centre-backs there then you've got ability at set pieces but the big issue as well was playing out from the back it was absolutely shocking they couldn't get the ball into midfield United Morgan Schneiderlin defensively was was all right, but with the ball at his feet was shocking. You know, Michael Carrick coming on in in the second half was crucial to United's resurgence. But then again, they they just conceded from op- opportunities that you know you know you need to deal with against West Ham. It's it's sort of naive in a way. And, and Van Al said after the game that yeah, the, the big thing he told the players was not commit fouls in the, with you know within sixty meters of his goal. There were there were eight Quiet, fouls so. that United committed in their final third. And three of them came from under Herrera, and it was a it was a performance from under Herrera that was absolutely woeful. Especially, it's, it's inexcusable. You can't do it. Imagine if Ferguson had said that to them. This is the problem. I don't think Vuli van Gaal has the dressing room anymore. I don't think he has for a while. And I feel that the players have got some, you know massive thing, you know, massive sort of case to answer for for poor performances and not listening to their manager's instructions. It's just an absolute shit storm to be honest yeah I mean at least I mean the good thing for United is at least they've got say like a young promising Portuguese oh for f- yeah we'll come on <laughs> what about uh, what about West Ham obviously on the pitch first off uh, they got the result they needed to get in that final game they bottled it obviously oh, they, no, they didn't a club moving up was there Lawrence I mean it's exciting times for West Ham fans they've sold out 50,000 season tickets for next season that's more than Arsenal have sold it's it's a good time to be a hammer 
um, yes, because you can hit things. Yes. Um, although then you might also, you, I mean, they may have lost, say, a thousand of those season tickets uh, with people who got lifetime bans yesterday. Um, <laughs> the uh, I mean, uh, yeah, no, it's a good time to be a hammer, I guess, uh, if they do make the top four. I mean, Billich seems to be an inspirational figure for a lot of those hammers. Um, uh, the nail, if you like. Um, you know, it's it's good because they're moving to Olympic Stadium, all those kind of things. Mm. They've still got a long way to go, though. I think. I mean, I think we've seen the best and, and the worst at West Ham this season. They've been I think a lot of people are wondering the, about there being some sort of plateau. They have been impressive against the top sides. I mean, some people who remain nameless thought that you know Billy should be the first manager sacked this yeah, season. Yeah. Still getting sacked next don't, season. Don't want yeah. names. Well, they've been impressive. They've exceeded expectations. Um, yeah. They're not going to finish the top four this season, but I think there's something to build on there, and the, the future is looking bright. Is what I'm to say. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, I mean they, they, to be honest, but then you could say that for so many clubs in the Premier League right now. No, I, mean, I don't think so. I'm, well, I'm looking down the table and I'm thinking, okay, so Leicester City's future is brighter than you would have thought at the beginning of the season. Same for Spurs, skip Arsenal. Same for City. Uh, I mean, you could even put Arsenal in there if you're not being trite. Uh, Manchester United, West Ham, Southampton, Liverpool, Chelsea. Um, you know, skip, I think it's different, skip for, West, uh, skip, it's different skip for West Ham in that they exceeded expectations this season and there seems to be a long-term plan in terms of they're moving into this incredible new stadium next season. The revenues that are going to come from that, they're already towards that top four this season. Next, next season, what could they do? You know, Southampton are obviously all, all up there as well, but it doesn't seem to be that, that next step that they're going to go to in terms of the, the infrastructure of the club. Yeah, yeah. But then I haven't necessarily seen um, the long-term steps on the pitch. Mm. Um, I, guess, I guess I'm just more sceptical. <laughs> you know, I guess that there's, you know, there's always a, an element of scepticism uh, around what's going on at, at West Ham because you know, we've seen very promising things happen in the past uh, and then the wheels fall off. What did you make of what happened off the pitch then? Ugly scenes before the game. Uh, West Ham fans. There was, there was a carnival atmosphere uh, outside the ground, but a few fans maybe took a little bit far. <laughs> Which carnivals are you Throwing going to? bottles um, and cans and projectiles at the team bus. In a, in a time-honoured Co- tradition, I think you'll find there, Adam. Yes. Uh, West Ham co-chairman David Gold and David Sullivan, though, blaming Manchester United for turning up late. Well, I think he, re- he retracted that statement, think, didn't he, today? He, did he apologised to the yeah. club. Um, Idiot. First place. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, it's first. I think what he was trying to say was it was the way that Manchester United addressed they deserved it. Um, it essentially, uh, basically, don't pay too much attention to them. Uh, you know, people always throw things at coaches when you go to other parts of Europe. Yes. Uh, everyone got uh, a little bit overexcited. I'm not downplaying what they did. Overexcited? I thought it was supposed to be a celebration, not kick it off. Uh, well, yeah, but, I mean, if you go, if you do, yeah, um, what I'm saying is let's not over uh, yeah. egg. Uh, let's almost not give them too much of the limelight. Regrettable um, behaviour, of course. Yeah, and they'll get lifetime bans if, what, if they are caught, which you, what I almost which you found say is very difficult more, to make a catch. What I almost found more interesting, though, was the reaction to Jesse Lingard's Snapchat, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, modern football phenomenon, uh, phenomenon, but it came out. Jesse Lingard was filming himself on the bus while all these sort of projectiles being thrown at him and, and, and all the other Manchester United players. Really strange video that he filmed himself, and obviously he was slammed on Twitter. He was sort of joking about 
we're having a good time and on social media this got absolutely slammed people questioning where the leaders were in this team where the focus was you know this is a, a crucial game for Manchester United where's the focus where is the professionalism almost I mean Dave what did you make of that yeah exactly that, that you summed up perfectly it was disgraceful what, what are you playing at what this should be this should be like the, the maybe that wasn't the moment but like like laughing about that sort of situation and posting that on social media how dejected are you from you're just about to play one of the biggest well, the biggest game of your season you're on snapchat you know I, I just don't understand that type of thing you should be you should be focusing at that point whether i'm being too um, you know in a way like it's, it's my world the highway you know authoritarian manager style but then the biggest thing with that was when they came on the pitch and they did the warm and everything like that west ham started with an absolute bang right you've just had shit lobbed at you a coach are you going to be a little bit annoyed right and they just didn't show any of that through the performance they didn't show motivated by that again not continually going back to sir alex ferguson but sir alex ferguson would have used that as a motivational weapon and would have won that game and it's just it's the difference in styles and it's the difference of these players right now that lack mentality. What do you think of that, Lawrence? Because, you know, there was a lot of criticism. I've seen it in newspapers as well. People saying, you know, Leuven Howe has lost control of Manchester United. The players don't know how to uh, react what's expected of them. This, there should be a more... That shouldn't be their priority, putting this stuff on Snapchat. It should be trying to focus on the game. And that, that shouldn't even enter into the equation, filming this on their mobile phone. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it all seems there's something quite English about it. The, yeah. uh, this sort of um, gross overreaction to everything that went on yesterday. That's what I was saying. Let's just, you know, treat it as it is. It's a case of uh, very excited people. Let's not put it down to alcohol. Let's not let anyone off the hook. You shouldn't be throwing things at a bus. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, uh, during the anniversary of uh, Blackburn, uh, the 25th anniversary of them winning the league under Kenny Dalglish. There was an interview with Kenny and uh, Alan Shearer and uh, Chris Sutton. And they told a story about how they used to dick around on the bus. I mean, granted that, you know, this was after the game. The story was told. But they, they had a, the, so the story goes that Blackburn somehow, I don't know how, but had a hammer at the back of the bus. And each player had to go to the back of the bus and tap the hammer slightly harder against the glass at the back of the bus. So players are going back, tap, 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 tap. I think it was Chris Sutton who ended up hitting <laughs> hammer against a window and obviously making it smash. And apparently the bus driver was furious and Kenny Dalglish was sort of turned a blind eye to it. And I guess that's part of it, is that it's sort of like, it's all well and good. You know, say United had won it, we would have the hindsight of, oh, you know, oh, yeah. No, I think so. Look at the light-hearted nature with which he sort of takes it. it it's yeah, but all... you don't want that. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want my team being light-hearted about a situation like it's that. I want them to be driving place. the passion. But, but, the but that's part of it, Dave. Is, is that's, taking their that's selfies very... and all this sort of stuff, even when they've succeeded, that sort of almost narcissistic culture of... You know, it's, it's about them. They're filming themselves. They're doing the photos of themselves. There should yeah, but, be... Yeah, Adam, that's existed. What I'm saying is, it's not... That, so there's an isolated... If you've taken this isolated incident, which it isn't, there have been narcissistic people within football for years. Gaza's an awful narcissist. You know, there's there's just generations of them. Fucking Tony Adams is a narcissist. You know, mm. That whole entire Arsenal team under uh, Wenger had an ego fucking go back and look at Sir Alex's side 
Bloody Roy Keane is a narcissist, a sociopath. Yeah, but what would what would Roy Keane done in that situation? He I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been done I, a Snapchat and wouldn't have sent it around him laughing, would he? He'd I, be getting the lads riled up. I, I agree, but at the same time, I'm saying there's a very prescriptive nature to it, and he's still a very young player. I would be less concentrated. He's 24 years old. He's at 25. He's, be, he's not young. But he's he's still one of the the less senior members of the squad. What I would say is he's. There are other members of that team. Everyone's getting down. Everyone's sort of laughing and sniggering at it. It's not just him. I'd say it's symptomatic of a wider problem. Um, and I think, you know, the overreaction today, as far as I'm concerned, and, uh, you know, that's not me putting down, you know, I agree with what Dave's saying, mm. is, in, is sort of, it, it, for me, very often I think people do it more to sell papers and put a story out than to actually Perhaps, in yeah. some way progress the narrative of what's going on in football. That's an interesting point, but I feel like it speaks to the... I mean, you talk about there about how players, you know, when, when Kenny Dalglish was black with energy, you speak about how these sort of similar antics were going on, on almost. You know, it wasn't deadly serious on the bus, and they are all 100% focused on the game, but it does speak to, like I say, almost that narcissistic nature of maybe the technology is available now to film themselves and parade it in, in, on social media. But Well, maybe, maybe it's also about a manager striking the right balance. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we also don't know how Van Gaal reacted to that. Mm. Uh, you know, did he, he, he may have punished him. Uh, you know, there may be a huge punishment for that within the club. Um, although you'd imagine the club would make that public. Although maybe Van Gaal doesn't want that. You know, there's so many different mm. sides. Of it. I think, you know, we really are looking for a narrative here to beat certain elements of that team with. Maybe there is a one. Um, elsewhere, of course, Liverpool drawing... One all of Chelsea tonight. Not much. Who to gives say a fuck? Yeah, the Belgian, the Belgians put themselves in the As window. Scored, Benteke scored. I, uh, yeah, Benteke exactly. Elsewhere, Chelsea. Are, they're both leaving. <laughs> but uh, we we do go into the final day with perhaps the only uncertainty, assuming City do beat Swansea, is of course Arsenal and Spurs. Who's going to finish second and third? And that one remains to be seen. But hopefully now Newcastle, nothing to play for. So. Uh, just relax, lads. Just <laughs> don't worry about it. Let Spurs win. Let's finish by Arsenal and we'll all be fine. Um, elsewhere, though, today, the news came out. Arsenal confirmed that Danny Welbeck is out for nine months. He suffered an injury to his right knee. It was thought to be around three to six months, obviously a lot longer than that. Um, some accusations being thrown around about Arsenal's medical staff. When you look at the amount of games Danny Welbeck played for Manchester United before he moved to Arsenal, <laughs> quite a dramatic decrease, Dave, uh, since he's gone to the Emirates Stadium. Um, not necessarily because he's joined Arsenal, but again, Arsenal fans not happy with their medical staff and the, and the job they're doing there. Yeah, I think there must be something that are feeding them wrong because there just seems to be players yes, going down left, right and centre. And I think it's just that it's unlucky injuries like that come knee injuries especially. I, I tore my ACL playing rugby. Um, it's never really been the same since, and it's it, it's another knee ligament damage that Danny Welbeck's got. So it's just a bit lucky. It didn't. It looked quite innocuous. The the challenge didn't really look like it was a big one, or mm. it, it it looked like he just got a bit of a dead leg. But it was really sort of you know gone in a way again, which is is sad for Danny Welbeck. You know, Roy Hodgson kind of really likes Danny Welbeck. He uses him as an auxiliary forward on the left, on the right, uh, up front. So it's, it's a bit unlucky for Roy because he's got a player there that he knows he can count on. For England as well, talented, talented individual. But it kind of makes Roy's job a little bit easier in picking his squad with another player picking up a pretty terrible... Does does it make it easier, Lawrence? I mean, Welbeck was, as Dave says, he's a, he, Roy Hodgson's a fan. You'd have thought he might have been in the squad. People are saying now that it comes down to a straight shootout between 
Lingard and Townsend to replace him. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll find out on Monday, won't we? Uh, when Indeed. they announced their 23-man squad, uh, allegedly delaying it uh, because of the last weekend of football. Uh, why they didn't originally schedule it after the last weekend of football to see whether <laughs> yeah, players sure. would have just, been injured anyway. It just it's makes just, sense to bloody <laughs> do it after last week, lads. Before. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but not only that, but then you also have a cup final after that. Mm. You also have, there's so much more that you have after that. <laughs> Champions League final. Champions League final. I just, I don't, Europa League final. I don't get any of the way that these people work. It's like they sort of go, is that date good? Yeah, brilliant. Let's go then. And you're sort of like, when's the Europa League final? It's oh, shit, it's after. Never mind. Anyway, carry on, everyone. Even you're, so, it, you would have expected him to get picked because as Dave says, he's he, he, a fan. I mean, who would you potentially take in that spare place? Like I said, Lindgaard, Townsend, Andy Carroll, of course. His name was always mentioned. Troy Deeney. Would you put someone else in the field? I mean, Troy, Deeney, Troy Deeney is a good one. Um, Jermaine Defoe. We mentioned him earlier. Jermaine Defoe's not a Theo Walcott. Theo Walcott's not going. And the Ox, <laughs> definitely, the Ox definitely isn't. Um, you know, would you put drink water in that space? Uh. I mean, who would you? I'm asking you. Who would you take as as Mr. Manager, as it were? As as Roy, uh, I would. You know, I'd be t- very, be very tempted to put Troy Deeney in there. Uh, I, I mean, Mark Noble would also be a shout, right? Uh, um, uninspiring, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, how many of the names in that list do you think inspire you, Adam? Mm. I mean, to, to be fair, <laughs> um, would you take another? Would you? Would you maybe put? Um, I'm trying to. I mean, I'm really trying to think of someone who can sort of step into the Danny Welbeck s role. Danny Welbeck does seem like quite a specialised role at this point. I think he's quite versatile. Can play for the middle, can play out wide. I think that's why Roy likes him. Um, I don't know. It's difficult, but we'll, we'll, like you say, we'll see on Monday. But it's obviously a blow for Arsenal, um, a blow for England. I'd say because, like I say, he's a, he's a youthful, versatile player. We'll see who uh, who Roy chooses to replace him in the England squad on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's finish off, guys, in a little bit of transfer talk because two big moves yesterday announced by Bayern Munich. They signed Renato Sanchez from Benfica for one. But 45 minutes later, they followed that up with the news. They've only gone and bloody signed Mats Hummels from Borussia Dortmund. Now, this was... How do they do this? How do they do this? And so it's not like everyone else is operating on a different schedule or anything. It's possible that all those other teams It's May. It's bloody May. It's the start of May. It's clever. There's summer signings. Um, First off, though... It seems a little bit selfish. I almost feel like there should be a rule against it. Delayed by like a month. Give everyone else a chance to to bring in these sort of players. No, just level the ground. It just it seems weird. Like it just seems unusual that it's only Bayern that are announcing two huge signings right now. What do you make of the Hummels transfer, Lawrence? Because it makes sense from it makes sense from Bayern Munich point of view. This is a guy who's back to his best this season in the Bundesliga. Fantastic defender. Obviously, they're going to try and bring someone like that. He's from Dortmund as well. Yeah. Like I say, he's returning home. He's come out and said, you know, after eight and a half great years of Dortmund, it's time for me to try something new again. He's said he's returning to the club. He's home. Fair enough. They're still calling him a snake. They're saying it's a disgrace that he's moving to Bayern Munich. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, people... Um, he was originally at Bayern. I don't, I don't get... Do you know, yeah, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like... Guys, he was there before. I mean, he's only returning to his former club. People it's, not, let's put it this way. Yeah, but it's, the, it's not like it's a path that's not very well trodden at this point. It's not like this is. It's not like Dortmund sort of turning around and going, 
What a bloody surprise. Is that what makes it Although harder the, to stomach? Though, for, maybe, that... maybe from the outside, but I also think it's partly that when those other players left, although... You know, he is sort of a, a very individual case in that sense because he, like you say, he's returning, mm. if you like. Um, I, mean, the, I mean, there is the aspect that then you look at all the quotes, which were sort of along the lines of, um, you know, <laughs> I can't understand the mentality behind it. Uh, you know, why would anyone do that to the club, et cetera, et cetera. Although maybe, you know, things change for each player. And, you know, fair enough. I mean, maybe he was talking about Goetzer in a specific way. Maybe he was talking about uh, Lewandowski <laughs> in a specific way. He could still win the cup with Dortmund. He said that's his aim. Um, we'll see. I mean, it makes sense for, for Munich, as I said. Another one that makes sense, obviously, Dave, is Renato Sanchez, one of the most highly rated youngsters in Europe. Sanchez United after him, of course. How did they get him? How did Bayern they get him? Gipping them, Dave. That's good. What is Renato Sanchez going to bring to an already stacked midfield for Bayern Munich? Oh, God. Another different op- You know, another option, a box-to-box midfielder. One of- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The best young midfielders in world football. It's just incredible that no other club's sort of really gone in from or really made an effort to sign him. We don't obviously know that, but what it'll give is dynamism to that midfield. He's really, really good at sort of sitting next to a ball-playing uh, midfielder and being that link in bet- from the midfield to the attack. Plays in a four-four-two for Benfica next to either Fazer or, or Samaris this season. Um, and what he could do for Ancelotti, Ancelotti does quite like the four-four-two shape. And if you've got Lewandowski up front with um, Thomas Muller, then mm. Renato Sanchez could be in there, or Vidal could be in there next to someone like Xabi Alonso or Thiago. They've just got so much option there. He's a player that is very explosive, very good in the tackle, can cover ground very well. So if you've got the likes of you know Robin on one side or Ribery on you know on one of the flanks, he'll be the man that can go out and cover. And um, he's he's won something like fifty eight percent of his tackles in the Champions League this season, making I think he's attempted. Uh, 24 tackles which is a pretty decent stat you know winning 6 out of 10 tackles is very very good the game against Zenit uh, he was sort of tasked to deal with Hulk so um, Hulk was playing on the right hand side and Nicolas Gaitan was playing left wing for Benfica and what Sanchez was doing was covering Gaitan because Gaitan was uh, wasn't tracking back as well as he could and there was I think there was yeah. two or three moments in the in the two in the two ties where he outmuscled Hulk. This lad's 18 years old. He's a physical specimen. Mm. Um, and the really another really interesting part is the amount of times that he can play 90 minutes. You look at most young players in 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 the world of football, ones that are less you know like less than 20 years old. They don't usually make the full 90 because it's just what the nature of a young player playing at the higher level. It's difficult for them to have that stamina. Renato Sanchez is a joke. 
He's still breaking play up at 90 minutes. He's still busting his gut box to box. And I think that's where he'll give Bayern Munich. He'll give him, he'll give them another dimension in that midfield, which they don't currently have. And Bayern Munich are going to win everything next year. They have got an absolutely fantastic squad, as you say. And a fantastic manager as well. Bayern Munich. This week's talking point, guys, is was Pep Guardiola a failure at Bayern Munich? Joining us once again is Kit Holden, journalist for the Mail Online, who analyses whether a former Barcelona manager has been a success at Munich. Right, it's time for this week's talking point then. Joining us once again is journalist Kit Holden. Now, we spoke to you a few months back about Pep Guardiola and what his legacy may well be at Bayern Munich. Here we are after the fact, a week after Bayern Munich were, of course, knocked out of the UEFA Champions League semi-finals by Atletico Madrid. The question dominating all the press in Germany and especially in England is about has Pep Guardiola been a failure, Kit? Yeah, it is dominating. It's getting <laughs> getting a little bit boring by now for quite a lot of people. Um, but I think the general consensus is that uh, no, he hasn't been a failure. Uh, he's failed on certain things which people didn't expect him to fail on. Most obviously, most uh, prominently the Champions League and, and not even getting to the final, let alone winning it. I think that's a that's a key thing to remember is that you know. Not winning it is one thing, but but not even reaching a final when Bayern had been in three finals in four years before his arrival is is actually a step down. Um, but I think people do also appreciate that his team in the Bundesliga has been more dominant than, than Bayern have ever been, um, and the way they've played has been fantastic for four years. Um, so there's a kind of there's very mixed feelings in Germany in, in all quarters really. And that's the thing is, I mean, you talk about that. It's, it's all about that failure to reach the final when he essentially inherited a treble winning team that sort of uh, failure to get to the final is what sort of is is the the blot almost on his time there but at the same time it isn't really fair to judge him on that one aspect surely because it's three consecutive semi-finals all the same it's three consecutive league titles and as you say he's got Bayern Munich playing some fantastic football yeah and I think it's also worth noting that Barcelona um, have been far better over the last three years than they had been in that 2013 season when Bayern did win the treble um, and it was going to take a year for, for him to get the players accustomed to his way of playing so the first year I think to expected the treble in the first year would have been too much anyway um, and I think the, I think the trouble that people have with, with sort of forgiving him those semi-finals is that particularly in the first two uh, it was so clearly a, a kind of psychological and tactical failure and it repeated itself uh, that they did it against Real Madrid they couldn't deal with, with fast counter-attacking powerful uh, opposition and they capitulated once they were under the cot and then they did it against Real Madrid Guardiola said it was his biggest mistake and, and he got it all wrong and then a year later they did it pretty much in exactly the same way against Barcelona um, and I think the fact that they they at least fought and probably did deserve to reach the final. Not saying that Atletico didn't, but but it was a it was a pretty much pound for pound brilliant battle in that semi final a few weeks ago. So I think the fact that they they got that close and they would have deserved to be there also is a bit of a saving grace. But it still it still does great with people that yeah he didn't he couldn't particularly as an old Spanish opposition as well. That and you know he's a Spaniard and it, it it's kind of the story is too good to kind of let it go and not call it a failure. <laughs> 
I think it is interesting you say that. I mean, uh, how much is he even to blame for the failure to reach the final? Because arguably they were sort of the, the, the better team this year, although, as you say, they were outclassed in, in his first two years of Bayern Munich. And of course, you know, if, if Muller scores that penalty in the 33rd minute, we might be looking at a very different story. But all the same, it does sometimes feel like he's almost a victim of his own success because that success at Barcelona, coupled with the fact, as I say, he inherited a treble winning side, means he's expected to almost live up to impossibly high standards. I mean, you can't really expect him to win the Champions League every year, can you? I mean, no team's even won it back to back yet. Well, precisely. And I think, I think also it's very difficult to know what he classes as success because he's won so many trophies and he clearly does love winning. I mean, you know, as much as anyone else does. Um, but he also obviously judges it on, on far more kind of or far less quantifiable terms as well and, and I think he will go away and, and a lot of people would support him in that view he'll go away very very proud of the way he managed to tra- translate his style of play and his philosophy onto a completely new culture and onto players who, who you know hadn't grown up with it in the same way that they had done at Barcelona um, and so for him that would have been in some ways just as big a success as, as winning the Champions League by scraping through in the way in Chelsea did in 2012 or something you know it's 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 difficult because his his he's not just a victim of his, his own success, but also of his own character. He his whole approach to football is so unique. That's why one of the reasons he's one of the great coaches and why he's so fascinating. No one thinks about football like he does, and it's very hard for him, I think, to judge himself on other people's terms and for everyone else to kind of work out what terms he's judging himself on. It's interesting you talk about what he views as success because. As you say, they've, they've dominated the domestic league. A lot of the questions over here, I'm not sure if it's the same in Germany, but a lot of questions in England about how much worth actually winning the Bundesliga holds. How much credit can we actually give him for three titles in a row when the club systematically drain their biggest rivals of the best talent and are almost winning at a canter? It almost is taken for granted over here that he should be winning the Bundesliga. Yeah, and, and it is a little bit in Germany as well. I mean, it's... You know, it, it, that was a minimum requirement for him every season is to win the Bundesliga and with that team and, and with his reputation. But at the same time, I think I think it it is over exaggerated a little bit. Um, if you think in that first year, they they won the title by March, um, which is it doesn't matter how how bad your opposition is. And by the way, it's not that bad in the Bundesliga. There's certainly plenty of Bundesliga teams who who uh, could be playing in the in the top ten of the Premier League, um, and. Yeah, no matter how bad your opposition is, to win a title in March is is a phenomenal achievement. And then you look at this year, um, and Dortmund was statistically the, the the best runners up in Bundesliga history. It was a fantastic team with Royce and Bamiang and Kagawa who, who fought and fought and fought and played some absolutely brilliant football. Um, and still, Bayern win it with with two games to spare or one game to spare. So, because of the again that those expectations and the fact that Bayern obviously won so many more Bundesliga titles than any other club. It, that cliche does get over-exaggerated a bit, but if you look at the way they've actually done it, it is pretty incredible, um, the, the the sheer dominance. And it's the sort of dominance... I mean, Bayern have always kind of, in that old cliche of German efficiency, they've always kind of scraped their way to titles. And even when their, their teams weren't so good, you know, 2001 or, or under Magat or some of the ones in the 90s. And Whereas this these weren't, you know winning just by virtue of, of being the biggest club these were winning because they were absolutely fantastic and I think also taking that thing you said about systematically buying other clubs players well 
actually they've if anything they've probably done it a bit less under Guardiola because he has bought a lot more from foreign leagues um, and I think you know again that can be over exaggerated because you know people, people go oh they always buy Dortmund's players well they've bought five players now including Hummels from Dortmund in their entire history and okay the last three have been Dortmund's best players at every turn but Dortmund in turn by all of the good players from, from Gladbach and Mainz and you know that's really how it works and and Yes, that's a factor, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win the title in, in such an emphatic way for three years in a row. It's interesting to look at the bigger picture as well, aside from results and aside from titles, because under Guardiola, it does feel like Bayern have sort of elevated that next level. They've almost established themselves as one of the few truly elite clubs in the world. You know, with the Dortmund players as well, they have got a ridiculous squad. You know, Hummels uh, and Renato Sanchez signed just a few days ago, of course, who are going to be there when Ancelotti comes in. But they have shown incredible consistency domestically and in Europe. And despite the fact, yes, they won a treble before he arrived, it does feel like he's leaving Bayern in a stronger position than when he joined. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a guy um, in Germany, he's a philosopher and he writes a lot about football uh, from kind of philosophical perspective, sort of a pop intellectual. And he, um, he always says that the, the debate is always wrong. We always ask what Guardiola has given the Bundesliga, but actually Bayern has given Guardiola a hell of a lot more and Guardiola has given Bayern a hell of a lot more than he has the Bundesliga per se, you know. And, and that's also, I think, part of the reason that that people do judge him on those Champions League titles because most, for most people in Germany, they they don't care whether Bayern win the Bundesliga because they expect that anyway unless their team is in, in direct competition. But they would think it is a, a really, really great thing if, if Bayern win the, the Champions League. They would consider that a, a great achievement, uh, whether they'd be happy about it or not. Um, and so there's often, often this kind of thing of what, what did Gallo sort of status in European football and Bayern I think certainly have changed him and they've they've he has discovered certain things that uh, perhaps he wouldn't have expected um, having been at Barcelona his entire career about coming to a completely new culture and coming to a completely new um, country which I think and I think he will learn from those things at, at City and, and probably be a bit more cautious in in certain aspects than he has been here. It's interesting the conversation as well, of course, being a, a post-mortem of Guardiola's time at Bayern Munich, it's sort of turning now towards Manchester City, what he might be able to achieve there. A couple of people questioning his tactics. I mean, you spoke there about his philosophy, and it's obviously a man who has he's essentially changed football, but some people have criticised him for not having a plan B, and that in these big matches, especially the semi-finals, maybe not the latest one, that he's been tactically outclassed, and he needs to show more nous when it comes to these crunch, crunch games. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think that's that's a slight misdiagnosis because, I mean, even the the fact that they're people say vulnerable on the counter attack, every team is vulnerable on the counter attack. If you, if you are, if you have a lot of players forward and you lose the ball, then you are vulnerable and and you may well concede. Um, and if your entire philosophy and your entire game is based on having most of your players forward and applying insufferable amounts of pressure on the opposition then any time you lose the ball you are going to do that the, the brilliance of Guardiola's football is that they very rarely lose the ball they, and, and so it, it really only happens once every three games um, that they get effectively hit on the counter-attack what I think is more was more prominent with the two semi-finals particularly against uh, Real and Barca 
was the psychological capitulation and the fact that once they were under the cosh, they couldn't fight back and they, they couldn't re sort of set themselves and, and, and regain that kind of authority that they like to have over the game. And if you look at it as a way record in the Champions League as well, it's, it's really quite poor. Um, whereas the same record is unbelievable. They, they won almost 80% of their games by more than three goals, um, but lost and drew quite a lot of away games, um, certainly far more than you expect. And I wonder whether that's a kind of symptom of the fact that, that psychologically they he hasn't been able to, to get his team accustomed to the fact that they might not have the wind behind them at all times and they might not be in complete control at all times. And it's at those points, I think, that, that Bayern struggle. You saw it this season as well against, against Gladbach when they lost um, earlier on in the season. It was because they went a goal down within 15 minutes, even though they were dominating the game. And then they, they, they lost their heads a bit and they couldn't really work out what to do. Um, so I think it's, it's probably more psychological than tactical. Um, I think maybe in terms of the Champions League semi-final, they lost to Barcelona. Um, I think that kind of was reflected this season that kind of Guardiola gambled a lot with his system against Barcelona. He kind of went 3v3 at the back, which was absolutely disastrous considering he's playing Neymar, Suarez and Messi. Um, and again, this season it, against Atletico, it was a sort of a... I don't know what was wrong with Guardiola, but he didn't want to play on the counter-attack. And I think that's my biggest criticism of Guardiola, that he's never been able to set up and defend and hit people on the break. And if you go away to Atletico Madrid, the way that you play them is hitting them on the counter-attack. You give them the ball, you make them make the decisions. And you look at the squad that Bayern Munich have got, they're so geared to playing on the break, and it's something that Guardiola's never harnessed. And I feel that's somewhere that he's definitely got to improve it in the Premier League. You know, you go back to Sir Alex Ferguson, that won the Premier League title you know, numerous times, he was so good at being flexible, being able to play with the ball at home and being able to play on the break in bigger games. I think Guardiola needs to potentially learn that. Obviously, he has his way where he wants to keep the ball and he just want to dominate. But there is other ways to play football. There is other ways to skin a cat. We've seen Leicester City play on the break for a whole season and win the Premier League title. He needs to take that and maybe adapt that for Manchester City. Yeah, I mean, with City, I think perhaps, but I mean, I think I think I defend him in the sense that um, if you look at the way they played in that second half in in against Atletico in, in the first leg uh, in Madrid, that was kind of Guardiola's version of playing on the break. It's it's he played very consciously with with wingers who were crossing with their strong foot, as it were, um, and it was very much a case of. You get the ball. You you send those long balls over the top from Boateng that, that are well placed, and you and you your style of play is far more direct. And he's he has employed that style um, far more against the bigger teams. He did it brilliantly against Dortmund early in the season when they won five one. And that's kind of I think his yeah conception of of how you play on the break, so to speak, or how you play with a slightly more brutal and, and direct manner. Um, and there, there is a difference to that in the way that they've they've played in in big games. And the difference to that st- in that style to um, the kind of general possession football that they play at home, where they just kind of starve the opposition of any breath, possession, will to live. You know, um, so I think he is adaptable. But I think a that that sort of plan B needs a bit more work, and b. Yeah, uh, we'll see how it works with City. Um, and yeah, certainly it's back to the drawing board um, in terms of yeah, instigating his philosophy. I definitely think that's a, that's a good point in terms of how he was more direct against Borussia Dortmund and yes, potentially in the second half a little bit more de- direct against Atletico. But when you, you know when you come to the term, you know you look at teams that play on the break so well, counter-attacking teams, they sit deep 
And I don't think Guardiola will ever do that. I think that's the one big th- problem, that he will never want to sit deep and sit with his zones in his own half and then go. I feel it's always they have to dominate the ball. And, you know, potentially it's something that we will learn in the Premier League because the Premier League is such a tactically diverse league that he might pick that up from somewhere. Or he might go, oh, look, let's try this one game and it might come off. But, yeah, he, he's definitely improving. And I think the Premier League is just the next sort of stage for his career. And then what does he do afterwards? He's sort of done it all, right? Yeah, I think also we'll be interested to see how he... I don't think he'll ever sit back. I don't think he'll ever, as you say, accept not wanting to have the ball in the opposition half. But it may be that he invents something completely different or he refines that that way. That I mean, he plays that kind of crossing game and those long balls from the centre-back um, to beat the back line is is quite... is much more prominent under Guardiola at Bayern than it had been under Guardiola at Barca, I think. Um, and I think... That's probably something that he's that he's developing at Bayern, and and may we may see it refined and and perfected at City, uh, which will be very interesting to because I mean that's what he wants to do really is revolutionise tactics. That's part of the reason he would never allow himself to just sit back and play on the break is because he's not a pragmatist in the same way Ferguson was, um, and he he wouldn't see it as a success to win it win in that style. Uh, he would only see it as a success to reinvent that style and make make something out of it that was that was different and uh, and yet still worked. Do you feel like one of the failings with Guardiola is his use of Lewandowski? We saw how uh, Borussia Dortmund Lewandowski was the main man. They hit Lewandowski and they play off him with those you know the attacking midfielders behind him. The combination play there, some you know was absolutely exquisite at times. What Guardiola, for me, what he did with Lewandowski was play him as a number nine. He wasn't involved in the play as much. And it really took Lewandowski a bit of time to adapt to uh, the Guardiola style in the way. Do you think that he, he could have used Lewandowski in a different way, similar to how he used Messi and play him as a false nine, play him with wingers that are going to come inside and try and score goals? Do you think there could have been a different way he could have approached that? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think Lewandowski certainly looked far stronger when Bayern were, were having to adapt a bit and when the crosses were coming in a bit more and when they were, I mean, the, the beauty of that long ball tactic that he used uh, was that you had, a, at the back you had Boateng who can hit a 5p coin from, from 100 yards um, and at the front you had Lewandowski who can beat his man and move before anyone has even blinked. So at that point Lewandowski suddenly found a lot more space but you're right when the wingers were cutting in when they were when they were playing off their wrong foot so to speak there was a sense that and Lewandowski himself complained about it quite a lot that he just didn't have enough space to move um, and he was too easily played out of the game um, but I mean at the same time he still scored mm, pushing 30 goals uh, in this Bundesliga season he's still he's still the top scorer um, <clears throat> so it's you know You've got to take everything with a pinch of salt, really. It's, again, it's it's what terms do you judge them on, and uh, it's it's very difficult when. I, I just think so next year, I think Lewandowski is going to score 40, 40 goals in the Bundesliga, <laughs> just because it'll be under, it'll be on Ancelotti, and Ancelotti will play to his strengths in a way. You know, he will go direct if he needs to, and I think that's something that potentially Guardiola, you know, like you say, and he's worked on. But then, if you can, you know, if you play to Lewandowski's game, you have the best striker in world football. And for me, that's a little bit why maybe Guardiola hasn't failed, but hasn't achieved what he could have achieved. If he'd had that slight change of style, you know, slightly brought players in like Lewandowski that we've seen in the Champions League in the past, you know, those four goals he scored against Real Madrid, winning ties on his own. I feel that that game changer they had in Lionel Messi at Barcelona, he didn't quite find that at Bayern Munich. You know, if, if I am Robin had been fit for, you know, the full season, maybe he would have been there. Maybe if Ribéry hadn't had all of his issues off the field and as well with him being fit, maybe there was a player there. But I just feel that, 
it was just one, there was another cog that he needed in the system. And again, it seems like he's leaving at the wrong time in a way where another year, he could have found his answer this summer, obviously like buying Thiago and signing Douglas Costa. Maybe it was one more year that he needed to find that last little bit to complete this system and win the Champions League. Um, what kind of undies? Same. Oh, I see. Uh, I think you're right. I think Lewandowski and I would also add Müller uh, were underused or misused to a certain extent, and they and those are the two who could have been game changers um, in the way that the yeah you're talking about Lewandowski being um, that season at Dortmund and, and Messi always being at Barcelona. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Guardiola felt that he had. He had done everything he could, and, and if it wasn't going to work this year, then it wasn't going to work. And he also, I think, the, the atmosphere between him and, and that and the German media and, and German football would have got a lot more brutal and a lot more sour, I think, particularly if it had gone wrong in that fourth year. Um, so I think it was slightly kind of insurance bet just to say, well, <laughs> I haven't failed yet, and um, I'm not going to change anything drastically, so I'll just go. Um, which, yeah... Um, I would have liked to see him stay for a fourth year and, and, and try something new. I, I agree with you. I'm not sure about hitting on the break, but... Uh, <laughs> something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's the beauty of Guardiola. There is always that, you know, he wants to do something else. And I would have liked to... I agree with you. I think he, he could have stayed and he could have done more with, with Lewandowski and Müller um, in order to create something completely new tactically. But, but yeah, he obviously... Uh, Tried it all. It the same way. <laughs> and, I mean, what do you make of those who say he that his personality is essentially a problem that you know we've seen instances with the medical staff at Bayern Munich um, most recently after last week's semi-final he's sort of made those accusations of a mole being in the dressing room last week he's obviously a very intelligent man but also a very intense coach who demands everything from his players some have accused him of blaming everyone when you know things go wrong and he does seem to rub a certain few players and staff up the wrong way yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, the players who runs it rubbed up the wrong way, he basically just tells them to get out. I and mean, we've seen that with Ibrahimovic and Mandzukic. You know, if he has a personality clash, um, he just gets rid of them um, because he doesn't see them as fitting into his team. I think I think with the, the medical staff saga, which was certainly a big communication failure, at least on, on his part, um, it kind of goes back to the fact that the, I think expectations were were kind of conflicting between the German media and the German fans and Guardiola in that there was a lot of excitement when he arrived and I think a lot of, a lot of people in Germany were quite excited about the idea of him being a kind of character in German football whereas he was very determined not to say anything and he reached a, a level of German where he could say enough but not at any point too much um, and his press conferences have been for three years consistently dull I mean you could ask him what his wife's name was and he'd say my wife is super 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 uh, one, one of the best players you know, just it, 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 you know what he's going to say no matter how you phrase the question and that, that has grated on, on a lot of people I think and it, and it has meant that perhaps with those because not much is being communicated but also because people are frustrated with him um, with how little he's giving them those things have been, have been blown up quite strongly and I, I think he kind of perhaps didn't quite expect that um, and that rant about the mole um, that's been a, a long running saga as well but I mean that was really a rant about the press um, and about how much they've been on his back and, and how much they how much information they've tried to get from the club and I think he's felt a little bit like 
he should have been a bit more protected and, and, and the press should never have any access. Um, so, yeah, I think I think expectations were just different uh, from either side in that respect. And that, that kind of, if not put people against him, there's still a lot of respect for him. It certainly has grown into a kind of ambivalence between German media and German fans and, and Guardiola himself. I mean, how do you think he's going to get on a Manchester City in that respect then? Because it's going to be such a fascinating time in England. I mean, you talk about the press there. The press here are going to be more than happy to knock Guardiola down whenever he has any little slip-ups. And we're also talking about a situation that's very different to anything he's dealt with before. Manchester City, there is some chance, although it's slim at the moment, they might not even qualify for the Champions League. We're talking about a team who... Um, not quite in disarray, but it's a very difficult situation that he's coming into. And of course, the competition next season, we're looking at Mourinho potentially coming back, Conte, Klopp. It's going to be a very competitive league he's in. I mean, how do you think he's going to deal with all those pressures and those problems? I think he'll he'll go it with a completely different approach, partly because he can't get away with the language thing as he has done here because his English is frankly too good. Um, and... He'll be a bit more prepared anyway. I don't think he really knew what to make of the German press, whereas he he, he knows about the British press. Um, and I think he'll probably have a slightly more coherent approach um, to communications and that sort of thing. And I think he can also... I mean, a, a friend of mine, a German journalist, was saying to me the other day that one of the most remarkable things about him is that he's unsackable uh, in the modern era, um, which no other coach is. And... Uh, saying perhaps that's one of the reasons he, he would never have considered going to Chelsea because no one is unsackable at Chelsea no matter who you are um, whereas a City you know apart from the fact that he's got friends in the board also you look at City's record I mean Mark Hughes and Mancini and even Pellegrini to a certain extent were given far more time than everyone expected them to get so I think he'll he'll know that he has that kind of buffer he'll find his bearings and he'll have that honeymoon period of perhaps six months where everyone's just excited that he's that he's in the Premier League and then it really depends on, on where he is at that point if he's if he's top then I think he can he'll probably be uh, yeah be given a, a long leash and I think I think he'll deal alright with that but if he's already struggling if he's sort of sitting sitting in sort of fourth or third um, because the players are struggling to get used to his philosophy and things then it'll be interesting to see how he how he adjusts himself and, and how he kind of asserts his authority in that communicative way. It's definitely going to be interesting to see what the expectations of success are because I I am assuming people are going to expect him to almost win the league as well and you know maybe even better their performance this season in Champions League uh, get into the semi-finals but we all have to wait and see for that one. Uh, for now though, Kit, uh, what is your assessment finally of, of, of Pep Guardiola's time in my Bayern Munich then? Some people are saying he's a failure some people are saying he's a, he's a success. I mean, it seems to me that, all, as always, the answer is somewhere between the two. And it's a qualified success. You know, you can't ignore all the achievements he's made, even if he failed to maybe get past that final hurdle of getting to the Champions League final and winning. Yeah, I think it is more proof that, that you can't write scripts for football. Everyone expected him either to come in and, and be absolutely brilliant and dominant win three troubles in a row or they expected him to fall flat on his face and it to be a disaster and, and, a, and a great tragedy. In the end it's been neither. It's been a very very successful three years by any terms uh, apart from the terms that people have for Guardiola um, and there have been some communication errors and some psychological errors um, but I think it's been a, a positive learning process for Guardiola, a successful three years 
and I think Bayern are certainly no no worse off. They're in a, a strong position, and aside from what the fans will say is a, a slight loss of identity, but that they can they can get that back, and, and they will get that back. I think um, if if they really feel it's gone. Um, it, yeah, I think it's exactly as you say. It's it's neither nor. It's just it's just that little sense of could have been so much more. But I think people will make their peace with that over the next few months. And, and I think getting Ancelotti was important for that for Bayern that they that they had a, a successor who was who was really almost as exciting in in sort of celebrity terms. Um, and I think in a few months' time, Guardiola era will be kind of forgotten at Bayern almost. There you have it. Great stuff once again from Kit Holden. Kit, if the good people, if the good listeners want to find more of your work and find you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, well, I'm, my Twitter handle is at Kit Holden and uh, my work is on the Daily Mail website and on the Target Speaker website and occasionally on the Independent website. There you have it then, Kit Holden. Uh, thanks to Kit for coming on again. I think it's an interesting point he makes there, Lawrence, that it's a qualified success almost. Yes, in some ways, it can be viewed as somewhat of a failure. He didn't get to the final, but that doesn't mean you can discount everything else he's achieved at Bayern Munich. Yeah, you sort of get to this point in the season, you start to watch the uh, speech that um, Steve Jobs gave, where he sort of said, you can only really connect the docks backwards. And I think in many ways, that's the way that Bayern Munich are working, because they believe that in a few years' time, you'll look at connecting those dots, and you, you know, you'll see players who are kind of developed through um, the, the Pep Guardiola system, um, you know, you'll see them reaching semi-finals, getting experience from that, those kind of things. Um, and, you know, the systems and those sort of things that Pep put in place and then having someone who can almost step very lightly to come in, like Ancelotti, and w- within some of those original uh, parameters that uh, Pep mm. set out. So, you know, I, th- I think that's what they're expecting. Um, but, you know, and then maybe they go into another cycle. You know, maybe they find the next guy is willing to innovate. Maybe they're thinking that, you know, in a few years' time, football will have innovated even further and you'll sort of have your next bit of intensity, if you like, or, you know, the, will 4 5 one be back or all those yeah. kind of things. Um, so, you know, there, there's that as well. So for that reason, like like he said, the, the you know, the qualification of that success is um, really important in this. But at the same time... Uh, it, he it's was hard. He it, was it's, hired. it's sort of hard not to go. Well, no, it, well, no. I, I think the point we made at uh, Bayern actually. No, he, he wasn't really. He was hired to build something, the foundations of something, um, and you know, winning within that was not necessarily. I disagree in the respect that he was he was hired in January 2013 before they won this treble, mm-hmm. and it was probably seen that Guardiola was going to be the man to take him to the next level. Little did they know <laughs> that he would achieve almost an, an unprecedented success. Yeah. That. It's hard for Guardiola to live up to that, not only on Bayern Munich's terms, but also his own terms, because you know he's been so incredibly successful at Barcelona. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I see what you're saying, and, and really, it's you know, it is about the trophy cabinet, you know. The, but at, at the same time, I think Bayern have a bigger, almost um, holistic view, which is yeah. that they want to entertain their fans and they want to you know, have build too, a better relationship feel, with them, etc. Yeah, that too. Like you say, they're, they're, they're playing some fantastic football under Pep, and I think they have become one of the few elite clubs in Europe under Pep Guardiola. They were, they were almost, uh, you know, they were on the horizon of that when Jupp Heynckes was there, uh, obviously winning the trouble. But now I feel like the consistency, three European semi-finals in a row, three titles in a row, which is four in total, is unprecedented. Frighteningly efficient as well. Yeah. Like, like and sort of, um, the, I mean, the, the other side is, and, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a cynic when it comes to brand partnerships, but, 
it isn't uh, any sort of surprise that Sanchez becomes one of Adidas's prize pieces <laughs> and then becomes one of the prize pieces of Adidas's biggest prize piece. The Ger- the biggest and best team in Germany, etc. Sorry, I'm literally living in a foreign country. Um, but I just, well, as I said to Kit, though, Bayern Munich is in a better place now than when he joined. And I think that's the important point to make. As you say there, it's all about almost the legacy of what Pep Guardiola has left there. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how Antetokounmpo comes in, his style, and also it's going to be fascinating to see how Pep Guardiola gets on at Manchester City with many different problems and many different facets of that role as well. Ah, for now, yeah. though, guys. What, what, no, what was the book that is about Pep? I can't remember what the book's called. That guy, the guy who spent... Ooh, I've got one in my cupboard. Oh, Dave's got, got, got a book actually. in his car. Oh, let me roll over. Fine. He doesn't. Oh, right, you know. Good one. The Guillaume Balagay one that's really good, actually. <laughs> the Guillaume Balagay one it. is good. So, um, However, it, sorry, it's Pep Confidential. Pep, Pep Guardiola, another, another way of winning. No, I recommend the, the that one, highly. Uh, the one that I am recommending is Pep Confidential. Ooh. Well, they've got to go get by two books, haven't they? Which was a year spent with Pep Guardiola. Looking at his methods, etc., etc. Buy them all. Buy both. Yeah, buy. Them. I mean, <laughs> genuinely, one of the best things that I think has ever happened on the podcast was that we we did have people buying um, the inverting, uh, inverting the, pyramid. the pyramid, which is, of course, uh, the the best way to start your um, life, your your life in football. If not buying, of course, or uh, subscribing to the Blizzard. For now, though, guys, thank you very much for joining us on the front three. Remember, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps us out a lot, so do get on there. Until Sundays. Q&A, Lawrence, when the, the whole league will be wrapped up in England and elsewhere. Where can the good people find you? You can find me on Twitter, at LozCast, L-O-Z-C-A-S-T. Dave? Um, go on to YouTube, I think, <laughs> and then type in Dave Talks, and you'll see me talking about football. Or Maybe ranting. other things in the future. Or, or ranting. ranting. Depends what mood I'm in, Adam. Yeah. Or crying. Yeah, I like it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. You can go on the YouTubes and find me at the Football Republic, along with Lawrence, along with Dave. Some good mm. stuff there as well. But hello, guys. Thank you very much for Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market listening and we'll see you on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah.